But uh, this morning, we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, it feels like it's been eons since we've been in Acts together. Uh, But the title of this morning's message is Speak. Speak. Um, And just a quick recap on Acts. You know, Praxeus, you know, the great works of men. You know, this word that was used for kings and and rulers and things. Uh, God has chosen through uh, Luke to, to speak of the acts of the Holy Spirit through the church and the acts of the apostles and what God was doing um, in this first century um, uh, after uh, the resurrection and the ascension. But we saw the Acts started out with the ascension. Jesus went back to heaven. He, he gave the commission to the disciples. Uh, he told them to hang out until Pentecost happens when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke in tongues. People began to get saved. Uh, the church begins to spread, and there's persecution here and there, but we see Peter and the apostles go out and uh, minister and uh, really begin to uh, make disciples of all nations, um, like the Lord had commanded. We see the lives of Paul and Barnabas, uh, Saul becoming Paul, uh, Barnabas and him setting out, the other guys like Silas and Timothy. We see the spread of the gospel primarily among the Jewish people um, as it spreads throughout Asia Minor through modern-day Turkey and the Middle East. Um, but we've also seen that there's been Gentiles in there. Even if you look, read through the Old Testament scriptures and through the Gospels, you'll see Gentiles being saved. And, uh, you know, some of the greatest words about faith Jesus said to a Gentile. Um, but now we see that, uh, you know, as Paul encounters more and more opposition among the Jews, that uh, God really begins shifting his focus to the Gentiles, even though Paul's heart is always for the Jewish people. But last time, uh, you know, again, ages ago, we talked about Paul's custom where every time you go into a city, he would head to the synagogue and he would reason with the scriptures with them. You know, they'd have these opportunities to share and to talk and uh, he would minister to them the gospel. Paul and Silas had been in prison. They were freed from there with that earthquake and miracle we remember. Paul went to Athens and Mars Hill and he began to share with the Greeks and uh, the intellectuals of their day about the unknown God. Uh, we talked about philosophers and circular reasoning versus God's reasoning um, and how that we, are, we all may be creations of God, but we're not all children of God. And we really need to know him personally and intimately. Um, but that sort of kind of gets us up to speed this morning. And to start off, I need to ask, I think, how does God speak to you? And to me, how does God speak to you? Well, primarily it's through his word. You know, God's given us his written word and the word is words. You know, when we speak... Words came out, right? Even my daughter knows that. My daughter knows a lot of words, and I love hearing her speak. But when God speaks, primarily it's, it's in his word. You know, God's never going to say anything new to you and me that, that isn't in align with his word. Uh, we may get a word from the Lord, you know, whether it's a verse or whether we feel like he's leading us to do something, but it's always going to match up with the word, uh, no matter what those people down the street um, would want you to believe about their extra books. But sincerely, um, also, God may speak to you through believers or the church. You may have friends who are believers, family members who are believers. Maybe you've got a, a message on the radio that you listen to or on the Internet, and God begins to speak to you. And it's probably through his word, or maybe through the words of a pastor or a friend who says, maybe this isn't a good idea, or, or maybe this is a good idea for you. God will use those things. God will also use prayer. You know, prayer is a two-way street. A lot of times we think it's rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen. And that's it. It's just, hey, God, thank you, here's my needs, and that's it. Sometimes God will want to speak to you in prayer. Um, Sometimes I encourage you just to spend a little quiet time with the Lord, not in a mystical, strange way, you know, focusing on your navel, but praying and, and spending some quiet time with him. Even if you don't hear anything, just the fact that in a sense, it's almost like fasting from speaking and just giving God an opportunity to get a word in. 
I mean, I think we all know what it's like to have a conversation with someone and you can't get a word in. Um, and sometimes I, I fear the Lord feels that way with us, or at least with me. But as we'll see in Scripture, like with Isaiah, God speaks in a still small voice. There is the whirlwind and the fire. And, uh, you know, you'd expect the all-powerful God sometimes to show up like a nuclear bomb and everyone would hear him. But God's more of a gentleman and he'll speak in a still small voice. Sometimes you'll be considering something, you'll be going somewhere, or you'll just be hanging out and, and God will speak to you. Um, in that small voice, say, this is the way, walk in it. Other times, God will use circumstance. Maybe God has already spoken to you, and you begin to go a direction, and then your circumstances begin to either implode or explode, or whatever the case may be. As we'll see, sometimes that you know we can't use these things as, uh, as a certification of God saying yes or no to, to a situation we're in, as we'll see with Paul um, a little bit later in this chapter. Uh, but a lot of times, if God warns us about something and we continue down a path, Things will begin to happen. I can remember times when I was uh, going somewhere I shouldn't have gone and doing something I shouldn't have done and something that normally wouldn't have happened to me would happen to me, whether that's financially, whether that's physically, whether that's whatever the case may be, because I knew what God had spoken to me. Um, And other times it's been, hey, I feel like God's leaving me to go do this. And then all of a sudden doors of opportunity open and and blessings are there. So um, it can be a confirmation. It can be something to watch for in life. Again, it's not the primary thing we look to, um, but it's something that that can be an indicator there. But with words, what words would you and I use to describe God? When we think about God, what words would you use? Almighty, all-powerful, Savior, friend. Would you use a word like, love of your life, person you're most interested in. I don't know. I mean, sometimes these things are challenging. Sometimes the words we use to describe God can really expose our relationship to him and what we really consider him. You know, he's the man upstairs. <laughs> I don't know if you'd really say that depending on how close you were with him. Uh, I don't know how respectful that is. What words would you use to describe others? Maybe your coworkers. Maybe that guy in front of you on the highway in the morning. I don't know. What words would you describe others? Again, these, uh, these words that come out of our hearts uh, can be very indicative of where we're at. Or what words would we use to describe ourselves? Ourself. Sometimes we have a higher picture of ourselves than we ought to. Um, but also, what words we, would others have about ourselves? If you ask someone to describe you, what would they say about you? Would it match up to what, what you think about yourself or who you really are even? Sometimes people have a wrong idea of you and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. But words uh, can mean a lot and I think we need to pay attention to our words, not only in what we're saying, but really in what God is saying to us. But let's pick it up in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 here. We're going to take it in a little bites today and hopefully make it through the whole chapter. Let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask again, God, that you would speak to us. And God, we give this opportunity to speak and uh, for us to listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 18, verse 1, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And it starts out, it says, after these things. The Greek word is metatauta. If you've read Revelation, you'll see that after these things pops up there as well. Um, It's interesting to, to think about that. That after all these things have gone on, Paul departed Athens. And now he goes to Corinth. You know, Athens to Corinth today is about an hour's drive. 
Paul didn't have a, a, a highway system and Paul didn't have, um, you know, a modern car to get there. So it definitely took him longer than an hour. But if you can imagine uh, the distance, it's about that far. But a little background on Corinth. Corinth was a major port city. It was similar to Ephesus, um, but it was a famous city and it had about three quarters of a million people back in Paul's day. And to put that into perspective, Montgomery County has a little over one million people today, or at least it did in uh, 2013, according to the internet. Uh, but Corinth was known for a lot of things. Um, Corinth was, had a saying about it, to live like a Corinthian. It was known for partying and for uh, immorality. Uh, modern cities, you know, are known for things today too. You think of New York, it's the city that never sleeps. Money, Broadway, fashion, Wall Street, or Philadelphia, cheesesteaks, American history, maybe cream cheese, the Eagles, I don't know. Uh, Hollywood for movies, for famous people, for our lifestyles of the rich and famous. Um, Las Vegas, you know, they call it Sin City. Um, I don't know why you'd want to visit there. <laughs> just kidding, but some people like it. I just never saw the interest in going there. Um, or Amsterdam is known for uh, uh, narcotics and nightlife and Im more immorality. These cities have a name to it. And if we think of Corinth, it was very much like that, where it was to live like a Corinthian, and there was a saying to it. Um, it was a port city. And uh, a lot of trade went through the region. It was a very major city. And um, uh, apparently the port dried up later on and it went through economic hard times and it, it fell away from uh, global um, influence um, in history. But Paul meets up with Aquila and Priscilla. And for some reason I looked up how to say their names in Greek and it's totally not like we say it. It's Aquilas and Priscilla. You know, Priscilla is a little bit closer, but it's, it's not Aquila. You know, it's, that's more of a Latin pronunciation, I believe. Uh, but the emperor at the time demanded that all Jews leave Rome. You know, there, in a sense, there was this ethnic cleansing going on. He wasn't um, to the level of a holocaust, but it was saying, hey, we want Rome to be Roman. Let's get all the Jews out of Rome at this time. So Aquila and Priscilla ended up leaving Rome, um, which was to the west of here, and, and coming over here to, uh, to Greece and to Corinth. Um, and it says that uh, Paul and, and, and they were of the same trade, and that trade was tent making. You know, uh, tents weren't exactly a niche thing back in the day. Tents were more popular among people, especially if you traveled a lot. You know, there, there wasn't too many hotels on the way. So I'd assume that a, a tent would come in handy. But it's this, um, this trade that they had in common. You know, I have a friend who went to go stay with his brother for a summer to learn a trade, to learn flooring and other things, um, which is interesting. It's, it's apparently very important to learn a trade. You know, if I didn't know how to do the things I do in computers... I don't really know how to do anything else, so I'd be kind of up a creek. So um, I'm glad I know that sort of trade in that sense. But Paul had a job trade. You know, we think of Paul all the time as this spiritual giant, which he was, but he had a trade. He knew how to work. He was willing to work. Um, he didn't just go around and say, hey, pass the bucket, give me a love offering. No, when he got somewhere, he looked for work. He did work, um, as we see several times in Scripture. But when he meets with them, he, he stays with them, and he works with them, and is very practical, you know. Uh, that they're both believers, they're both in the same city, Paul's on missions, they're leaving their homeland, having to find a new place to live, but they both do the same work, so they stay together, and they work together. I think that that's very smart on a practical level. You know, you're in a trade, you're in a new city, you find someone else in the same trade, you do business together. It's, it's, it's pretty wise, I think, just on a practical level. Um, but especially spiritually, I think sometimes we over-spiritualize things. Uh, that, oh, well, let me pray about it first, Paul. If we're, you know, they're both believers. Let me pray about it if we're going to stay together. You know, I, I get that. But I think also on the other time that, you know, if the shoe fits, we just need to wear it. If you've got a trade and you need money, well, do the trade. You know, we read in Thessalonians about people who were so anxious for the Lord to return. And I don't blame them 
but they'd stop working and they'd say, oh, well, the Lord's coming back. I don't need to work. And Paul would say, don't be so lazy. Um, get back to work. But it's an interesting parallel because in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, Paul says, for if we know that our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know that Paul made physical tents for people to live in, but Paul understood and preached and helped people prepare for uh, the heavenly body, for the heavenly world. And he realized that the life that we live now is, is the same as living in a tent. That as a believer and in this body, this body wears out just as a tent wears out. This body isn't always so fancy as a tent is fancy. This body, well, we can pick it up and we can move it and we can go wherever we want, just as you will with a tent. It's not so easy to do that when you have a house made of marble and you have six cars and a tennis court. It's not so easy to pick up um, and move. But when you have a tent, you can pick up and go. And Paul would even say, or the scriptures would say elsewhere, that we're sojourners, that in this life, we're to live as believers as if we're in a tent going from one place to another through life with the Lord, that we're able to pull up our stakes and follow the Lord as we need to go. But I think it's interesting that Paul compares uh, the body we live in now to a tent, and he's also a tent maker. It's something that he knew. This is a practical um, uh, example for him. But again, in verse 4, he's doing his thing, his custom. He's reasoning in the synagogue. Paul still goes, just as he's doing his, his earthly business, he knows he's only doing his earthly business, that he might continue his heavenly business. And we see that both Jews and Greeks still are persuaded. Uh, you know, and truth is truth. Truth is truth. When people hear the truth, it doesn't matter where you come from, where, what you look like, what you do. When you encounter the truth, um, it's going to affect you. And even more than that, God desires that all men would come to him. We see that through scriptures. Jews coming to God, um, uh, Gentiles coming to God. Even the reason why God used the Jewish people was to be priests for the world, that the world might turn to the Jewish nation before Christ to know that the Messiah was coming, that they would be an example for who? The world. Uh, they wouldn't just be for themselves, but that they would be a light for him. And the same goes for the church today. But 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. So not just uh, one ethnic group or another ethnic group, but even those in different classes, those who are kings, those who are in authority as well, those people who we might want to rail against or revolt against, that we need to pray for them as well. And he goes on and says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You know, we can get a lot out of there, but that God wants to save everybody and that there's only one person for every nation to turn to, and that's Jesus. He's the mediator. 
He's the mediator. Let's go on in verse 5 to 7. Um, verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. And we'll stop there for now. We see Silas and Timothy meet up with Paul now. Um, that word can even mean that they came down by ship. And I wouldn't be surprised, given the distance, geography, and nature of Corinth, to come down there from, uh, from Macedonia in a ship. Um, it was a decent trek for them. But Paul and Silas meet up, I mean, sorry, Silas and Timothy meet up with Paul at this moment. And it's interesting to see that, you know, Paul had been working, Paul had been reasoning in the synagogue, but when his friends show up, when Paul and Silas, I mean, excuse me again, Silas and Timothy show up, um, he's compelled by the Spirit when they get there. That he had been doing his work, he had been ministering where he was able to minister at the synagogue, but when his companions in the Lord, his co-laborers in the Lord show up, the Spirit compels Paul, um, and that they're sent out together, you know, that there's strength in numbers. We think of the Great Commission, when, uh, even before that, when Jesus sent out his disciples uh, two by two, that there's gospel teamwork because it's the body of Christ. You know, that God is working, and God's working not just through Paul, but he's using these other men um, and women as well. And this word compelled means to be pressed, um, to think of to hold together with constraint or to compress. I don't know if you've ever, like, made, I've never really made meatballs, but I guess you can press them, but I've made snowballs and you compress them and you compress it more and more and it turns into ice. That's, that's sort of the word here to compress or to hold completely. You know, if you ever have something falling apart in your hands and you're trying to hold it together and it doesn't stay together, uh, that sort of idea there, or even as a prisoner, you know, you're going to compress a prisoner from all sides so that they don't get out. But it can also mean like the urging of the soul is that Paul's soul was now urged so much by the Holy Spirit that more had to take place. More had to go on at this point. And it was the Holy Spirit who was compelling Paul. It wasn't just his friends came down and he was stoked that his friends were there. But it was God who was moving him. It was God saying, hey, I brought reinforcements. Let's go out now. It's time to go all out. You know, your coworkers are here in the gospel with you. Uh, and that these people have a need. And I'm moving. I would, I would sense that maybe the Lord would speak to Paul. That, hey, there's other people here. I'm moving. Let's go. Let's do this. Um, you can't just sit around and do nothing. And I, I don't know if you experienced that. Maybe it's a Saturday and you're just resting around and you know you've got stuff to do and you're just kind of bothered inside and you need to get up and do it. Uh, but this, is, this was sort of like that, but way more important. But you know, all is good, right? All is good. Paul's here. Paul's working. These other believers are here. They showed up. God's leading them. Uh, the Spirit's leading. You know, your buddies are here, but... Uh, people are going to get saved in droves, right? Thousands of people are going to get saved now. God's leading. Your friends have showed up. Uh, not really. Not really. Um, in fact, they get the opposite. They get opposition. And more than that, strong opposition. Strong opposition. Wait a minute. God was compelling Paul to go out and minister now. He brought Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy down to meet with Paul isn't it supposed to be a, a super huge success? Aren't they supposed to, you know, start a mega church now? Well, in this case, no. You know, it isn't that successful in a sense. It's successful spiritually for Paul because he's being obedient. But people aren't turning to the Lord. They're, they're, in fact, rejecting it. You know, people might say, you're failing, Paul. It must not be God. You're not compelled by the Spirit, God. You, Paul, you're compelled by something else. But that's not true. 
It was God and it is God. And that's why I said before, we can't always rely on circumstance to be the direction of our lives. Sometimes circumstance is the complete opposite of what we're doing. Sometimes, you know, maybe you're trying to do something and it's not working out the way you thought it was. That doesn't mean that you're not being um, successful in a way. Um, you know, our, our goal should not necessarily to be successful in life, but to be obedient, to be obedient. And Paul says, your blood should be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul's kind of like, fine, it's, it's, it's on you now. Uh, you know, his conscience was clean. He had done what God had led him to do, and he wasn't really responsible for the outcome. Hey, sweet pea. You know, that, that's all we really can do. We have to be obedient. If people reject it, well, that's their problem. I mean, granted, we can't just live any way we want and share the gospel in a rude way and expect people to come to him and then have not any responsibility in it. But if we're going out, we're being obedient to the Lord to the best of our knowledge and ability, and we're sharing the gospel and God's moving, and no one comes to know him, well, that's not our fault. That's not our fault. It's on them. First um, Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says, But with me, it is a very small thing, this is Paul speaking, that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And remember, the Corinthian letter is written later on to the church that's in this area. For I know uh, nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. He's saying, I know my conscience is clear. I have no reason to judge myself, but even if, even though I feel like my conscience is clear, that doesn't matter, because God is the judge of me. God is the judge of my conscience. God is the judge of my life. That's the same way, because a lot of people in their lives will say, oh, my conscience is clear. I feel like I can do this. I can get away with this. I can do whatever I want, but that's not the final judge in our life. You know, we have to be uh, held accountable to God. And that's the thing is that there's personal responsibility that we have a personal responsibility to be obedient to God, no matter the outcome, but so do other people. So what are other people, especially the people, if we're sharing with them, it's their personal responsibility just as much as us. It's our responsibility to listen to God and to obey God and to say what God would have us to say, but it's just as much their responsibility to listen to the words that God is speaking to them. Um, you know, I think sometimes even then, maybe we try and beat down that door. We stick around too long when it is time to move on. But again, that's another thing to uh, seek the Lord about. But he says, that's it. It's time to go to the Gentiles. You know, and there's, a, there's a time. There comes a time to move on. There comes a time when, when there is opposition, when there isn't uh, growth as you'd expect it to be, to move on. And again, that's something, you know, how do we know that? How do you know that? How do you know whether you're supposed to continue down a hard path or just turn around and go the other way. Well, that, you really have to pray. You really have to pray because sometimes opposition is a closed door. Sometimes it is God saying, don't go this way. You know, we've read earlier chapters of Acts. They tried to go into Asia and it says that the Holy Spirit prevented them. So sometimes it is God saying that and sometimes it isn't. You know, again, um, it might be just hard ground that God wants to keep breaking up. You know, uh, they say uh, farming can be very hard, especially, um, you know, you put all this work and effort into plowing the ground and planting the seeds and watering it, and you may not see fruit. You may not see plants for a long time. Maybe the soil needs to be dug up more. Maybe there's rocks that need to be dug up. Maybe there's no nutrients in the soil. Maybe it's just you need to put more water, but sometimes it can take a long time for that to happen. Um, and I don't know about you, but I like immediate results, you know, especially in my job where I program, I put in a bunch of lines of code and I see if it runs and if it doesn't run right away, well, I did something wrong. So I go back and change it and it's this immediate, the computer doesn't really have to think about it. It either works or it doesn't, you know, and then I have to think about it and I go, well, I, I thought it would have worked, but it, it doesn't work. That's, you know, it's the same way, you know, God knows what we're supposed to do and, and we just need to be obedient to him. 
But it says that this guy named Justice worshipped God, and he had a house next door to the believer. And again, I wonder, is this practical? Hey, I'm a believer. You need a place to stay, Paul? <laughs> I'm right here. Okay, cool. I don't have to walk that far. You're right here. So Paul stays there. Um, but again, the practicality um, that comes along with uh, uh, spiritual maturity here. Let's go on in verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Uh, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. You know, we see that uh, here, that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, gets saved. That's a pretty good name. You know, maybe we can think about naming our baby Crispus. No? Okay. <laughs> I was thinking about Zerubbabel, but Ash is not on board for that. Um, but the ruler of the synagogue here gets saved and his whole house. And that's a recurring theme that we see in Acts, that people get saved, they hear the gospel, they get saved, and then their whole household gets saved. Um, that there's genuine salvation and genuine growth there. And I've seen that. You know, it's not all the time. Um, but, you know, like uh, my wife's parent, mom gets saved, her dad gets saved, Asha gets saved, her brother gets saved, her sister gets saved. It spreads through the house. I've seen it in plenty of families at church where uh, someone in the family gets saved and begins to spread. And it's not always universal where everyone in the whole house gets saved. But um, uh, it works that way. God will work that way. And I think it's, it's great to see that here in the scriptures. That, yeah, salvation is a personal thing, but it also it begins to affect those around them. But the Corinthians heard, and then they believed, and then they were baptized. You know, there's an order here. There's hearing, there's belief. And then there's baptism, where there's living out that life, living out your belief. And I wonder, you know, why don't people believe? Well, maybe they haven't heard. Maybe they haven't truly seen and truly heard the gospel. Maybe they've gotten a, a touch of it, but maybe they haven't truly heard it. and haven't truly encountered Jesus. You know, I remember getting saved. Um, and then my first encounter with what I would call, quote unquote, real Christianity, you know, or at least that my eyes had been opened up to it. Growing up in the church and, and going to a Christian school until eighth grade and knowing the, knowing the Bible stories and, and seeing some form of Christianity, but then getting saved and getting plugged in to, with a bunch of young people and a bunch of people who are on fire for the Lord and seeing the, the difference in their lives. I was like, wow, I didn't even know this existed. I even know you could get together in your basement and worship together and raise your hands and, and pray together. And, and that when you read the Bible, God speaks to you that there is this whole different life and that you have this love and you don't have to do the same things that the world did. That there was this difference there that I had never encountered before. And, and maybe, I, maybe I'd been around it the whole time. My eyes were just closed to it, but something was different about it. Maybe that's what people need to see uh, in here in our lives. And um, I know that's what they need, especially in this day and age. Um, but you know, God speaks to Paul at night again by a vision. If you remember the Macedonian man, a few chapters back, Paul has this vision of the Macedonian man. They go to Macedonia and they don't even encounter a man there. They meet Lydia and the other, the other ladies praying. Um, but God says to him, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you or hurt you for I have many people in this city. And why would God, uh, say to not be afraid to Paul? I never would think Paul would be afraid. But he is. You know, if we remember uh, in the Old Testament, God, I believe, would speak to Gideon and say, hey, uh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, mighty warrior. And that's the same thing here that uh, Paul was afraid. You know, Paul had been attacked before. Acts 14, he was beaten, left for dead outside Lystra. 
He was beaten, jailed, chased, mobs, seeking him out, sneaking out by night. He, he can't go anywhere else. He has to get in a boat and go to Athens. Um, you know, he's pretty much a spiritual fugitive at this point. Uh, it's not surprising in a sense that he's afraid. He keeps following what God is telling him to do. He keeps going out there. And what happens? People get in his face. People want to beat him up. People want to hurt him. And so he's, he's probably a little weary at this point here. Um, you know, Paul was at least afraid and had thought about not saying anything anymore. You know, we read the scriptures about that, that I tried to hold your word in, God, but it burned within me and I had to get it out. And who can relate to that? You know, when we obey the Lord, it doesn't go the way we th- thought it would. When we share with someone that we've been praying for and we love and they totally reject it or they make fun of us or they don't talk to us anymore or whatever the case may be, you know, I don't know if I want to share anymore. <laughs> Next time you had me share, God, uh, that happened. And the time before, that happened. <laughs> well, this, this is no fun, God. But God reminds them that He is with them. And sometimes that's all we need is the confirmation that God is with us, especially when things are going hard. Because when things are going good, it's easy to go, hey, things are good. I got my friends. I got my money. I got my, the, my sports teams winning, whatever the case may be. But when things are hard, it's like, why are you even doing it? You know, and to be honest, I've prayed that a lot. You know, this last year has been an interesting season for us. And God, like, God, uh, what's going on? Is this you? And what do I do? And I know that God has just been confirming that he's with us. And that's all that matters. Whether it's six months, whether it's a year, whether it's 10 years or 20 years. He's, if he's with me right now, I don't, I don't really care about tomorrow. But if he's not with me, I want to be where he's with me. And knowing that he's with me gives me strength. You know, there's tough times. There's lonely times in life. There's opposition even in ministry. Your friends leave or your family turns on you like we talked about. Or maybe you lose a job or a loved one. Whatever these cases are, you know, we can name a million cases. But knowing that God is with you is all that holds you together sometimes. And that's good. That's all that's compressing you together. Sometimes you just want to totally fall apart in life and you feel like nothing is working in your life. But God is the one who holds that together. His word says that he holds us in the palm of his hands. But as Paul's here, and Paul's in Corinth, this wicked city, this corrupt city, People are opposing him. Paul's afraid. I mean, I mean, if Paul's afraid, I know that I would have been completely terrified. But God says to him that there's many people in this city. There's many other believers in this city. And I think about driving around here, you know, even going down to the post office box to get the mail and wondering, is anyone a believer? And then seeing a Christian bumper sticker or a fish on the car or a sign for a church somewhere or the radio stations coming down here and learning about them or other churches. You know, sometimes it doesn't look like there's another believer for miles and miles. Uh, you know, even when we were going to, to rent the new place and we meet the guy at the office and he's a pastor. <laughs> so God's with us, you know, and God's around us. Um, sometimes uh, it's just right under the surface there. But they're there and we're not alone. You know, if you think about maybe a soldier being in enemy territory, um, it would probably feel a lot better knowing that there's other guys behind enemy lines with you. You're not the only one. Because going alone can be a hard a hard thing, but we know with the Lord we're not alone. And in First Kings nineteen twelve through twenty one, we know this. Uh, it says, and after the earthquake a fire, and but the Lord was not there. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" And he said, "I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword." I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Molo, those are some names, 
You shall anoint as a prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth has not kissed him. You know, Elijah had fleed, and he was afraid. And God says, I've still got 7,000 people in Israel whose knees have not turned to, to Baal. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing. Um, and he goes on and goes on there. Um, but basically that, you know, there's, oh, God always has a remnant. God always has other people going on. He talks even about in the last days during Revelation um, that there will be a remnant. There will be people who are saved uh, in that time and during that time. But Paul stays there another 18 months, teaching the word of God among them and the importance of staying when God says to. Paul didn't run away, but Paul stayed and continued to teach uh, the word of God among the believers. They needed someone to teach the scriptures, and I think who better than Paul? You know, God has plans, even if we don't understand them, or even if we don't see anything that remotely looks like spiritual success. Like uh, we heard before that um, success isn't what should matter to us. It's obedience as believers, because uh, success is really, it comes from God. And, and how do we get there through obedience? But let's go on verse verse 12. Let's sip here. When uh, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Here we go again. Uh, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. We see that the Jews are back at it again. Uh, they're getting the secular authorities involved here. You know, that's the flesh. When we don't like something and we want to lash out, that's usually the flesh. And they tell a total lie. You know, the, Paul wasn't preaching against the law, but that the law had been fulfilled in the Messiah. And Paul can't even get a word in here. He can't even say, hey, what's wrong? Uh, Gallio cuts everyone off. He says, hey, I'm the secular judge. I don't care about your religion. I don't care about what names you're using in your religion or what laws, religious laws you've broken. If it was a crime or something against the state or something uh, secular in the legal system, I'll deal with that. And I'm going to stick to that. So get out of here. I don't, I don't want to see you anymore is basically what he says. And they, they take the ruler of synagogue and they beat him in front of the authorities to turn a blind eye. You know, there's this mob rule. There's this corruption in the government. They don't care about what's right and wrong morally. They just care what's right and wrong on uh, the books. And we see that, you know, the separation of church and state. Well, that's not really what it says. And we see that um, all things kind of go downhill when we rule without uh, morals. It was interesting this week. Um, I don't know why, but uh, during some free time, I was looking up, oh, something about someone going to an Ivy League school. And I was like, well, what are really our Ivy League schools? So I looked it up. And the mottos of all these Ivy League law schools are all about God, all about thy light is truth. And, you know, you, you can't judge without morals, you know, <laughs> like, really? You know, do the lawyers pay attention to what's on the wall? I'm surprised they haven't torn these things down yet. I wonder why there hasn't been a lawsuit against Yale or something for that. Uh, but it's interesting. You know, you really can't rule without morals. And we see that here. We see that today. That when you take morals out of the system, um, the system becomes totally corrupt. 1 Corinthians 1.1 says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ for the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. That Sosthenes, this ruler 
of the synagogue. Uh, it's interesting that his name means savior of the nation, and, and the nation uh, really rejects him here. But this guy, Sosthenes, and Paul have a relationship that goes on. Let's pick it up in verse 18 here. And it says, So Paul still remained a good while, and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with them. And he had his hair cut off of Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he had gone up and greeted the church, and he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples." You know, Paul stays a little bit longer. You know, opposition, but he still knows God is with him and he's not running away. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila go with him. You know, they're good friends. Again, they weren't really settled in the region yet, so they continue with him and they support Paul in the churches. But Paul here has his hair cut off, and that's a Nazarite vow. You know, we read number six in a sense, Samson, where you would grow your hair out and not drink wine um, and not uh, be involved in certain things as consecration of the Lord. At the end of it, you would cut your hair off in a ceremony at the temple. But um, uh, some commentary says that uh, the, the vow of the Nazarite was taken for a certain period of time, was completed, uh, was cut off and offered to the Lord, which is said. But the purpose of the vow of the Nazarite was to express a unique consecration to God, promising to abstain from all products from the grapevine, to not cut one's hair, and to never come near a dead body. Uh, no problem there. <laughs> But why did Paul do this at this time? Uh, this guy named William Barclay suggested, no doubt Paul was thinking of all God's goodness to him in Corinth, and he took this vow to show his gratitude. But the purpose of a Nazarite vow seems to be more of a consecration than a thanksgiving. Perhaps the intense worldliness of Corinth made Paul want to express his dedication and separation unto the Lord more than ever. You know, Paul had been obedient to the Lord. God had spoke to him. Paul was in a, a very worldly city. Um, you know, when we went back up to New York for our friend's wedding, it was nice to be in the country. We went up through Pennsylvania. It was like, wow, hills and trees and, and stuff. People are like, what, are there no trees down there? I'm like, oh, there are. <laughs> but it just was nice to get out of the city for a while. Um, but we're glad to be back. But, but Paul would uh, perhaps was so overwhelmed and just wanted to express his thankfulness to God here with this vow. Um, but Paul doesn't stay longer here this time. The, the Jews are sort of listening in the synagogue. He goes about his business and reasons with them. But he wants to get back to Jerusalem. He's got this, this longing to get back and celebrate in Jerusalem. Um, and he says here, to return again to you, God willing. God willing. You know, what a picture of a different time. Like we talked about, there's no airfare. There's tons of persecution for the church. Uh, there's dangers. There's God always leading him. It's, it's intense. I mean, think about that. I, I want to go down. Imagine saying that to your friends. I want to go down to Jerusalem, but I'd love to come back to you. But God willing... <laughs> I'll make it back to you. You know, obviously, like James talks about, that it's up to God where we go. And Paul's been doing different things. But this is a long journey. Even today, it would be a four and a half hour flight from Ephesus to Jerusalem. And it must be days or weeks or even by ship. You know, I tried to get directions on Google Maps. And I guess with all the conflict going on in the Middle East, it takes you like up through Syria, around through uh, Iran or Iraq and Saudi Arabia and back through Egypt and back up. Like you just had to go this far, but it took you all the way around. <laughs> you know, um, so I can imagine that things weren't too much different back in that day. But they took God seriously. They took God seriously. That's a long journey. Imagine that, walking that far, going that far. Uh, you know, to go back to Jerusalem or to go and be a part of missions, that's, that's intense. 
Um, but he's back in Caesarea, like we, in Antioch, like Acts 11. That he's going back and visiting the churches on his way back. He's never missing an opportunity. And I think that that's great, that Paul's heart was for the church, was for the believers he was influencing. Like when we went back to New York, do we want to spend time with our friends and our family? And they want to spend time with us, and we encourage them, and they encourage us. And I'm sure you guys can relate when you meet up with friends that you've been in ministry with before and haven't seen in a while. It's just, it's a blessing. You always want to make sure they're doing well. You know, I was asking my friends, uh, how are you guys doing? Because I want to I hear how they're doing legitimately. But let's go on. Let's read uh, 24 through 28. Let's see if we can finish out this chapter real quick here. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos was born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, um, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Apollos, his name means given by Apollo. He was a Jewish man, but he obviously had a Greek name. He was born in Alexandria, um, uh, but he was a Jew, and he was well-spoken and well-versed. That the words he said were intelligent, but the words he knew were the scriptures. You know, he taught accurately, and he taught passionately. He loved God. He loved the scriptures. He loved the Messiah, but his message wasn't complete yet. It was a little bit out of date. Uh, you know, I guess news and word didn't travel as fast as it does today. He didn't have a, a cell phone to get an update that Jesus had risen from the dead and died on the cross and all these things. Uh, but he was teaching the baptism of John, that there was repentance as the Messiah had come and making a straight path for the Lord. But again, he obviously hadn't heard all that happened. Um, you know, it wasn't the full gospel yet. It was everything up to a certain point, but he hadn't read the final chapters yet. And so Aquila and Priscilla hearing this, take him aside and they update him and they bring him up to speed on the gospel and how important that is that uh, we do share with others who may not know the gospel completely. You know enough, but maybe that maybe their points are off a little bit. You know, maybe if, if I ever share something that's a little off, which I'm sure is more often than not, and you know a more complete scripture or a more complete word on that, feel free, please share it with me. I need to know these things. Um, I want to share a complete gospel um, in my own life, in my own house, and uh, in ministry as well. But they reveal this to him, and at this point, he's even more pumped to help out the other believers. He goes out and he says, oh, I want to go over there and I want to help them and, and I want to continue sharing the gospel. Now he knows the whole story. It's even uh, more on fire in his life. But how does he help? He helps through grace. He helps through grace. You know, that knowledge is one thing, but carrying that knowledge with grace is another. It's so important, you know, in everyday life, in our personal life, and in, in helping others, grace is the grease of the ministering mechanism. You know, if you ever have to change the oil on your car, if you don't change it after a while, it's going to wear out. The oil is going to break down and burn up and parts are going to rub together and metal is going to come off and your engine is going to break and you're going to be very sad because a $15, $30, $45 oil change is now going to cost you $3,000 to fix the engine. And that's similar with grace. That, that grace will grease up the parts of your life. It will begin to make the rough areas smooth. It will begin to make the hard relationships not so hard anymore. It'll make the gospel go down easy. You know, when uh, I remember being little and not taking pills yet and after taking medicine and wanting a drink or when Mia is sick and giving her some apple juice with the medicine, right? It helps, right? That's the same way grace 
really helps the medicine go down sometimes. It goes a long way. Grace goes very far. It's like a synthetic oil change. You can go 10,000 miles before you need it changed out. But he, was, he vigorously got in the face of the Jews. You know, he was eloquent and he was versed in the Bible very well. And he was not afraid to stand up for the truth, even to those who would oppose it. But he did it full of grace. You know, and how did he do it? Not with experience, even though experience is good. And even though he had a right attitude and a strong attitude to resist the proud, um, which does go a long way, he does it with the scriptures, something they profess to know. Because you can't argue with the scriptures. You can argue with me all day long about what I think about the scriptures, and I can argue with you all day long about your scriptures or experience or uh, whatever the case may be. Well, when it comes down to, it's in black and white. This is what God says, and we can't really argue with that. We can try and argue with what we think about it, but it doesn't change the fact that the word says what the word says. And we know that God's word does not return void. Isaiah 55, 10-13 For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven returns not thither, so I copied the King James, but water the earth and makes it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing where I send it. For he shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the fir tree, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That God's word always comes back. You know, I can remember being uh, uh, a little kid and, and learning certain scriptures or learning songs, and they come back. It took a lot of years for those things to bear fruit. There's a lot of thorns in my soil. There's a lot of rocks in my soil, whether I put them there or they're put there or the enemy came along but they've borne fruit and to hear my daughter sing songs that i sang as a little boy i go lord what a blessing what a blessing but that's what god says that his word when it goes out it's not just going to go out into nowhere it's not just going to be on some podcast that no one listens to god's word goes out into all the world and everyone hears it and it will come back and bear fruit he brings up the analogy of of, of the ground with the rain falling on the ground that you know a lot of times you i guess you're farming and you work really hard and all it comes up is briars you know you're investing your money or you're investing your time into something or you're investing in a relationship and all that comes up is bitterness or all that comes up is never getting a promotion or all that comes up is my car keeps breaking down or whatever it is but when God's word begins to pour over these situations and land on these situations and, and feed the ground and the earth, no longer, God says, are thorns and briars going to come up, but, but healthy plants and healthy things, and the trees are going to rejoice, and there's going to be a path before you uh, to go in. And that's true. You know, sometimes we get in a real hard time in life, a real dry time in life, and we just need to keep pouring God's word on it. Keep pouring God's word on it. Keep pouring it out and letting it rain out on there because eventually... The water will come up to the top. You know, um, you think about like if you were to pour water on the floor in the kitchen, it would just you'd see it. But if you were to go into the desert with a bunch of sand and just be pouring water on it, it would just all get soaked up. Like if you're going to the beach or a sandbox, it just soaks it all up. It would take a lot more water for it to come up to the surface. And I think sometimes in life that's what we go through, where it's real dry season. It's a real wilderness season. And we keep pouring the water out and we keep pouring it out and we don't see any return. But God says. His word is not going to return void, that we need to keep pouring out that water, um, and God's going to do something with it. You know, God says that, again, about personal responsibility, that uh, one man watered and another man planted, but it's who gives the increase. God gives the increase. So as we go out in ministry, as we go out in life, as we begin to, to follow the Lord in everyday things, 
Um, God will bring the increase and give the increase as we uh, let His Word have its effect on our life. And with that, when God speaks those words to us, we should listen. And when we should speak, it should be what God has spoken. When we share something with someone, it should be what we have received from the Lord. What we have uh, picked up from His Word is what we can share. You know, we can't really bring anyone somewhere we haven't gone ourselves. And we can't really share with anyone something we haven't really experienced for ourselves in the Word or known ourselves in the Word. Yeah, we might be able to share intellectually with them, or this is what the Bible says, but when God brings us through that situation Himself by His Word, we really do have a a strong uh, footing with them. And again, we can't force others to listen, but we still need to speak. We still need to speak. It's, it's, It's imperative that, especially in these last days, even though the world would say, don't share your Christian views. Don't be a Christian. That we still live our lives as, as the Bible would have us live them and to share the truth with others, even if they never listen. Um, and Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that it's for us and for everyone and that you want everyone to be saved, every man. Um, and Jesus, that's why you died on the cross for us. And God, we thank you that you're the living word, that it's not just a rule book. It's not just things to know and to follow, but that God, through your word, we can know you. And God, we ask that you would speak to us, it would minister to us, and would uh, continue pouring out uh, your water on our lives and on those lives around us. Help us not to give up when things look bleak, um, but God, to continue to minister where you'd have us minister uh, in our families, with our friends, at our jobs, um, and just in life in general. God, uh, thanks for being with us, and please uh, uh, just use us this week and this day, even in Jesus' name. Amen.